Welcome to Episode 7 of An Unscripted Woman, a podcast that's all about women living luminous lives. I'm Leo Cooper Jepson, and I'm so glad you're here. Since releasing my book at the end of 2015, many of you have expressed a desire to hear me read an audio version of my book, Unscripted, A Woman's Living Prayer. This podcast is my creative response to that desire. Each week, I'll be reading a chapter from my book aloud in this podcast, and then I'll be riffing a bit on what I'm aware of and what I've learned since writing it. To make it easier to follow along, you'll find that each episode of this podcast corresponds to the title of each chapter from my book. And I'll remind you, you don't need to listen to the podcast episodes in order, much like you don't need to read the chapters of my book in order. Beyond that intention, I'm not entirely sure what this pod- where this podcast will go, but I'm willing to find out if you are. I hope you'll join me. And here's how. Follow this podcast on SoundCloud or subscribe to it via iTunes so that each new episode will magically appear in your podcast feed. If you follow my blog or my She Changes Facebook page, you'll see each episode posted out there as well. As always, you can find out more about me and my business at shechanges.com. So here we go. This is book three. Home is where the masculine is, where I explore the masculine energy in a woman's body. Chapter 7, Mea Culpa. For most of my life, I have not identified with the feminine, and that part of my story has been awkward at best and challenging at worst. I find that being a woman, people seem to just sort of expect it of you, kind of like the way moms of newborns just assume you want to hold their child. Or just because you have breasts, you automatically know how to nurse a baby. Or that if you're a woman married to a man, you'd somehow feel this burning desire to want to pick out his clothes and instruct him on how to dress. Or that you would absolutely choose to spend a beautiful Saturday wearing stockings and a dress, ooing and eyeing while opening gifts at a shower in front of a circle of women you don't know while all of your male friends you do know get to hang out outside doing whatever. It's awkward not feeling what I'm told to feel, to not naturally and readily identify with a feminine, and the effect has often led me to feel like I am somehow less of a woman as a result, even though I like who I am as a woman. It is... It has me feel feeling different, like I'm standing out, breaking rank, not playing by the rules. After all, I've had plenty of lessons about how to be feminine along the way. Magazines talk to me all the time about what the feminine is about and what she values. Marketing moguls figured it out years ago and apparently have me pegged, dialed in and squarely in their crosshairs offering me spoonful after sweet spoonful of what I should want, how I should feel, and what I should value. The problem is, I have not related to most of it. According to what I've been taught, the feminine is shallow, saccharine, and lacking substance. It's fluffy, soft, accommodating, nice, and pretty. Definitely not me. I know all of this is bullshit now. And if I were to be brutally honest with myself, I probably knew it back then, too. But for most of my life, I ate what I had been fed about the feminine, not questioning those things I had been taught by the pervasive cultural mist of our society, fertilizing my mind rather like that crop duster that used to drop DDT 
over our suburban lawns in the 70s. But the sad truth is, and I'm being brutally honest here, I didn't care. That, that's a perfect illustration of what I mean when I say I participated in my own shame, turning my back on the feminine by deciding not to care. That is one of the places I fell down as a woman, getting out my shovel and doing my part, burying the feminine in myself. I'm no longer denying that. Mea culpa. The reality is that while I was doing my best to disassociate from the feminine, it was because I was eager to feed the part of myself that happily, hungrily, and quite naturally identified with a masculine. According to how I was raised, that's no woman. That's a woman trying to be a man. This is about me not wanting to identify with the energy typically almost exclusively associated with my gender, the feminine, while at the same time not feeling like I had a right to identify with the energy typically almost exclusively associated with men, the masculine. In short, this is about me being stuck in between, not identifying. Things started to shift for me whether I wanted to or not when I revealed myself as a woman working in a man's world by getting pregnant. One of my last days in the office, before my maternity leave, I walked into a meeting of a project I had been working with for nearly a year as a consultant. The director, my client, looked at my belly, not me, mind you, but the child inside me, and said to the other colleagues, all men, She's going to be done soon, so we need to get someone else working with us. I'm not going to be done. I'm just going to be out on maternity leave. You made it seem like I'm going to be dead or a cow being put out to pasture. And I laughed. I laughed. There it was again, another instance of turning my back on being a woman by trying to disassociate and reminding them I was one of the guys. I'd acted as if I didn't care or that it didn't hurt that I was being summarily and publicly dismissed because I was a woman who had the audacity to have a child. I laughed for being an inconvenience, a wrinkle in a plan, an extenuating circumstance to be dealt with. My laughter was a silent agreement, a secret shame. It wasn't funny. Even at the time, it was awkward and horrible and sexist. There was a part of me that wanted to conjure up the image of his own mother to make my point and how she had been done when she brought him into the world. But something in me was done and dying, never to be the same. The part of me that could no longer deny I was a woman, insisting I was just one of the guys. She was done. My edges had rounded as a result of this pregnancy, literally and figuratively, and I found myself opening to more, much more than just this be, being growing inside me. As I grew larger, I became swollen with the unknown, filled with questions and fear and doubt, even as I celebrated how badass my body was to actually grow another human being inside it from scratch. I grieved that I could no longer retreat or move backward to the place I had been, that safe and known territory, back to where I fit in and didn't stand out so much. That part of me was done, too. Up until that point, I had known who I was. I was Lael, not a woman or a man, but just me with my very cool different name that most people couldn't pronounce the first time. But once I became pregnant, there was no denying the fact that I was a woman. And then came the shame, 
any anger. Finally, almost as a relief, like a much-needed inhale, the curiosity. What was it about being a woman that I had made so unsavory, unappealing, and undesirable? Thankfully, something wise in me yielded to my curiosity, knowing better than to march forward. I sat with those sad questions about how it came to be that I had actively denied I was a woman until it was undeniable. As images flashed through my mind, I could feel there was a reclamation happening, a reconfiguring based on new and updated information. And with it came a validation, a rightness, that I was not wrong or less worthy being born a woman. One of the moments of imprinting I recalled when I was five years old. My family was renting this old Victorian while our new home was being built. That house had stories in its walls, many of them not happy, and something in my five-year-old body sensed that. There were lots of dark hallways and hidden passages, like the house could not hold, could hold many secrets and still be hungry for more. My mother, I would learn years later, was living in a loveless marriage with my father, miserable, aside from the bright light my sister and I offered her, feeling trapped and stuck, wondering what was wrong with her that she couldn't be happier. All these feelings, emotions, and intuitive awareness must have been popping like kernels inside my little body, barely able to be contained. We sat down for dinner that night, and I remember there was some melancholy music playing in the background. I put down my fork, and I started sobbing. Everyone looked at me alarmed, asking me what was wrong, what had happened, what was the reason for my tears. Of course, I had no reason. I was five. And I was feeling something, many things, it turned out, that no one was talking about, but that lurked like a black cloud hovering above that old Victorian that night. So instead of simply holding me or having me be overwhelmed with the volume and intensity of my feelings, I was shamed for having them, singled out, and made fun of by my father as we all sat there at the dinner table. He had undoubtedly learned that particular parenting strategy from his mother, Shit trickles downhill, and his family was like a sewage treatment plant with a serious leak in its pipes. I finally pulled it together, as he insisted I do, but much was imprinted on my brain as a result of that experience. Silly, stupid, weak, out of control, disruptive, ridiculous, unreasonable, not justifiable, an embarrassment, messy, just plain bad. Anyone who knows me will tell you that I'm a quick study. And I must have made many notes on that, at that table with my father, probably more than I can recall today. But I'm fairly certain that's when I first learned there was a game being played, and I wanted to be part of the winning team. That was also the first glimpse of my competitive spirit, the warrior, the fighter, the contender. It will come as no surprise that upon entering this world, I quickly took stock of my surroundings, like Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games. In the first moments, she entered the arena with all the other tributes, poised and ready for action, taking in all the variables, making note of the contenders, strategizing on how best to play the game, to survive, if not win. For most of my youth, I was reminded of the fact that I wasn't a boy. As the youngest of two girls, I could feel the disappointment of being born the wrong gender. Long before I could make sense of that, I would hear my father and his parents lament the end of their family name with my birth. 
I was their last hope, and apparently I came up short. Their name died with my birth. I was its time of death. These messages were set the stage for my early understanding that girls are less desirable than boys. Clearly, we were lacking in something, although I had no clue what that might be. As a child of the 70s, I noticed very quickly that the boys and men were where it was at. By that, I mean that they were part of the winning team. They were believed to be the preferred gender, and when it came to sports, popularity, power, and achievement. They were clearly the best, and we and were the ones that set the bar against everyone else, at which everyone else was measured. Writing this from my vantage point as a woman today, nearly 40 years later, makes me choke with anger, disgust, and shame. I can feel sort of a rebel bile rising up in me, wanting to fight that notion, to rail against it, to knock it down. But I was not this woman back then in the 70s. I was very much a girl, and for me, back then, all of this was as plain as the nose on my face. It was my everyday truth, even in the wake of the women's movement and feminist activism that was seeking to raise our awareness and create more rights and possibilities for women and girls. So what did I do? Naturally, I aligned myself with a winning team. I embraced anything that the boys did. I donned their yellow jersey, quickly befriending a pack of boys, learned to ride, swear like a sailor, swung like Tarzan from trees and wild vines that grew in the hedgerows in the woods near our neighborhood, and held my own athletically. It was easy, actually. Thoroughly enjoyable, truth be told. It all came quite naturally to me. I was physically active, which made me strong. I felt at home in the natural world of woods and dirt, and related extremely well to the boys I hung out with. We would all race through dinner every night in the summer and meet outside in the cul-de-sac to hatch our evening plans of kickball, skateboarding, or race our bikes to see who could pedal the fastest. I reveled in the fact that I could beat any of them running in a 100-yard dash and bragged that no one could catch me on my blue Schwinn. I felt at home with them, and I took pride that I was often the only girl in our motley crew. But what I didn't reveal to any of them is how I preferred to pass the time when I wasn't with them. I was a different girl when they weren't looking. None of them knew, for instance, that my prized possession was a three-story Barbie townhouse that my mom had customized with wall-to-wall turquoise carpeting, fashioned from leftover scraps from our own home. I had everything, an elevator, the convertible, the country camper, Ken, a complete wardrobe, and every other accessory available. I didn't talk to them about my favorite books because they were mostly about strong little girls like me, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Pippi Longstocking, or Little Women and their adventures. I also didn't share that one of my favorite feelings in the entire world was when my mom brushed my long hair and how I could have her do that for hours on end without moving a muscle. I certainly didn't reveal how devastated I was when that long hair got caught up and bound by the wheels of my best friend Damien's G.I. Joe truck and how I had to have it all cut off in a short pixie cut long before that became the style. I learned not to reveal the depth and intensity of my emotions and became skilled at making fun of others who showed their own, showed theirs openly. Those were the experiences that cemented the found, my foundation as a girl and set me up nicely to disassociate with anything female. Those experiences during the first half of my life 
or about me organizing myself and my identity to align with a masculine, while actively disassociating with and disparaging girls and women. Writing this now, I can feel the similar guilt-shame-anger eddy I have been in. What I want for myself is to make friends with that state of affairs, to see how my experience isn't an accident or an anomaly, but can happen easily in our society, and to have that, and in fact me, be all right, even normal. Part of me misses the freedom of not realizing I was different, a girl among boys. Because as a woman among men, I don't have that luxury anymore. The expectation of how a woman ought to behave became become somehow heavier and more restrictive with age, even as, and this, I believe, is our saving grace, our give-a-shit meters go down with age. There seems to be an inverse positive correlation between the expectations of women and the degree to which they care. The older women get, the less they care about others' expectations of them. For me, that began in earnest in my mid-forties. It was never so poignant as when I invited a woman named Noelle Gallagher to speak as one of the five storytellers who would take the stage with me at She Speaks. Noelle was a bit flabbergasted by the invitation because she was a journalist by trade, the one who usually observed and took notes from the back of the room in the dark. But here I had asked her to step into the bright light and tell her story. I remember quite clearly our first meeting to explore the bones of her story and how she felt she had nothing to say. Somehow we got off on a tangent, which later proved to be the heart of who she was and how she used to love to roam the wide-open fields as a girl for hours and hours. Her parents were okay with this, giving her only one restriction. She had to take the dogs with her. And as a result, she taught herself how to yodel as a means to have her her voice carry over the miles and call them home. I'll never forget the way she paused when she touched that memory in herself. It was almost sacred. You could just feel it. It was like she had come across this old wooden chest that housed her favorite things about herself. But now, years later, as an accomplished professional and the mother of three children, she had forgotten that chest even existed until that day when we found it and heard her yodeling. Weeks later, Noelle took the stage and told her her story to a captivated audience, many of whom had lived similar stories. At the end, she held up an 8x10 photograph of herself that, serendipitously, her own daughter had recently unearthed and asked her about. Her daughter had written on the back, Mommy, age 9. Noelle, with tears in her eyes, held it up and asked the audience, many of whom were crying too, Do you remember who you were before the world told you who you were supposed to be? I, like Noelle, am starting to. I still feel so much shame about how I spent over half my life actively discounting and denying anything to do with the feminine, which sadly had me completely disassociating from being a woman. So I missed the opportunity to see myself as a woman for the first half of my life. It's like seeing an old photograph of myself back then, but my face is faded out entirely, like that scene from Back to Future when Michael J. Fox's character is messing with events to such a degree that he starts becoming erased completely. Part of my process in healing that lingering shame is to give voice to my role in creating it. 
At the same time, I've been sifting through the contents of my own wooden chest of memories from when I was nine, pulling out this and that, things I'd almost forgotten about, like my fearless nature and how I, loud I could be and how I could enter a room like a tornado with my hair on fire, my face all smudgy with a wild look of complete and utter happiness. I'd forgotten that part of myself that laughed loudly from my belly and slept deeply, even laughing out loud in my dreams. I'd forgotten about the part that used to do flips and back handsprings and leap off big piles of dirt just to feel what it's like to fly before landing back down on solid earth. I'd forgotten the side of myself that didn't worry so much about being enough or getting it right all the time. Even as I write this, I'm sighing. Imagine living without those burdens weighing on my psyche. But I'm not just idly reminiscing about the innocence and freedom of girlhood. No, it's something more. I'm accessing parts of myself I'd left behind when I started to be told who to be. The pieces that didn't fit in with where I needed to go, like my ability to be a strong leader, which morphed into bossy, and my ambition, which later became aggressive, and my tendency to speak my truth directly, which was characterized as mean and eventually vicious. Those are my things. They are me. They are mine. Always have been. Always will be. Because as a woman, I now have been able to find my way back to them, having teased apart the masculine from male in a way that I can now see they are not one and the same. It's possible to fully claim one without being both. So that's chapter seven from my book, Unscripted. And here's a bit of a riff on what I'm aware of and what I've been thinking about since writing that. You might have heard how frequently I referred to shame. And it's funny, I love Brene Brown, and I've read so much about her stuff, her two TED Talks, her books. And she's a shame researcher, and she always jokes about, if you want to shut down conversation in a dinner party, start talking about being a shame researcher and watch how everybody sort of dissipates to the corners of the room. So, um, But I have a new relationship and, frankly, a new respect for having conversations with shame because I'm now realizing on the other side of that conversation with shame and naming it is joy, is freedom. Just like Brene Brown talks about, I have writing this book has been a huge personal experience of that. So the phrase that I use a lot with my clients is where are you participating in your own shame? So it's very tempting to start with others and how you are being marginalized, how you are be, the oppression, the invisibility women can face, the sexism women can face. It's very tempting, and the media would reinforce that. And to some degree, it can be very overwhelming and at times can feel like an unsurmountable hurdle and almost out of our control. So that question, where are you participating in your own shame, invites you, it, it's embedded in that invitation, is an invitation uh, to acknowledge how you are um, helping to create the very experience that you don't want as a woman. So participating in your own shame, I will give you a, a clue as to how to sort of follow that trail. 
Anytime you say the, the, the phrase too, T-O-O, like I'm too loud, I'm too aggressive, I'm too um, bossy, I'm too much, I am too this, um, that's a sign that you are expansive and you are seeking to tuck the corners in of yourself or shrink a little bit. So ask yourself, when you hear that word too, I am too, I'll often use the word too loud or I'm too overbearing, um, whatever it is for you, notice what you're attaching it to and get curious about where you are asking yourself to actively shrink in your life. Nine times out of 10 in my experience with my women, with uh, the clients that I work with, it's a source of the greatest strength. Uh, on the other side of that too is your greatest strength that you are um, tightly, tightly managing. So a place to get curious. Um, the other question that you'll, you saw me play with in here is that intersection between um, the feminine and being a woman and how I'm parsing apart being the masculine energy that I'm so wanting to access and reclaim and have pride in and being a male. I'm breaking those apart. And to the same degree, you'll see me expound more in my book about breaking apart the feminine from being a female. From It's not about gender. It's about energy in the context of this book. Um, and so you'll see that um, in order to get to the feminine, I had to first reconcile the fact and acknowledge and look and explore and unpack the fact that I was a woman. In fact, I have a women's circle that I do up here in Portland, Maine, that is a five-month women's circle. And we meet one evening a month, and it's called On Being a Woman. And I started that circle long before, long before I wrote this book. I've been doing it for 10 years. And I've never changed the title because it is such an active conversation that I want to have. What does it mean to be a woman these days? Um, so how often do you use the phrase and do you identify with the fact that you're a woman? How often do you disassociate from being a woman by saying gender doesn't really matter or it doesn't really, it, gender has nothing to do with it. It's not really relevant. And who would you be and what would you have access to if you didn't disassociate? So just get curious there and notice this is not, you'll see in the chapter that I wrote in this book, I'm, I'm trying not to, I'm not being punitive and adding to my own shame. I'm trying to leverage curiosity. So tune your ear to your own language and get curious. Um, and finally, I'd leave you with that question. Um, and it makes me think, um, my sons and I are, we read aloud every night before we go to bed and we're almost finished with Anne of Green Gables. And I have, I hadn't read this book when I was a girl. I would have loved it. Um, and I'm watching as Anne grows up much like Pippi Longstocking, except Anne grows up the degree that she apologizes for daydreaming and noticing beauty and her loud voice and her chatter and how gradually and sadly as the story starts to wind on and how she gets older um, that side of herself that she was nine when she started the story um, starts to get tucked inside a box and she the character starts to grieve it too and feels the burden of being a woman and this book was written in 1908 so uh 
yeah, it's still an active conversation, isn't it? So I'll leave you with that question that Noelle Gallagher asked our group of women, um, and she speaks. Do you remember who you were supposed to be before the world told you? Do you remember? I'm getting the question wrong. Hold on. Do you remember who you were before the world told you who you were supposed to be? One more time. Do you remember who you were before the world told you who you were supposed to be? Okay, then. Thanks for listening to this episode. And here's to living unscripted and having access to more of who we are and letting our bright lights shine freely. Go ahead and be luminous.